When Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren walked onto the debate stage earlier this week, it felt like the audience was holding its breath for this moment. Let's not turn to an issue that's come up in the last 48 hours. Senator Sanders, CNN reported yesterday that, and Senator Sanders, Senator Warren confirmed in a statement that in 2018, you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election. Why did you say that? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. (laughs) This was less of a real debate question and more of a chance for the two frontrunners to tell on each other. Elizabeth Warren got this shocked look on her face as Bernie Sanders frantically scrambled away from this allegation of sexism. Senator Sanders, Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? (laughs) I disagreed. This exchange came after a week of slowly building tension. First, the news that the Sanders campaign was telling its volunteers to subtly insult Warren, passing out scripts that claim she's an elite who won't excite new voters. Then the CNN story popped up about a dinner between the two candidates back in 2018. That's where Sanders said whatever he said about women in the presidency. The response to what has happened has been so dramatic to me. Derricka Purnell talks politics over at The Guardian. She spent days watching this friction build up between the Sanders and Warren camps. For people who I think have, you know, Bernie as their number one and Liz as their number two and then Liz as their number one and Bernie as their number two, I am now seeing conversations that's calling them liars, calling them sexist. There was like the surge of people who were screenshotting their refunds from their donations from Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And by the end of this week's debate, this conflict spilled out onto the stage. Sanders tried to shake Warren's hand, but instead she confronted him, said, I think you just called me a liar on national TV. A liar on national TV? What? I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion? We'll have that Anytime. discussion. You called me. You told me. All right, let's not do it. Now. I just hope that people just kind of chill, especially this Warren <laughs> Sanders thing. I just kind of wanted to go away. Derricka is an unapologetic progressive, the kind of person who might support either of these candidates. She says she knows as this race ramps up, all the people on that debate stage, they're going to get sharper elbows. At some point, we know that Sanders and Warren are going to have to start distancing themselves from each other. We're going to have that's going to happen. I just don't want it to happen on, you know, on this on these terms. I just don't want it to go down like that. I would much rather it go down you know, on the basis of policy or leadership style, but not like this. Today on the show, Derek is going to talk about why the way this feud ends matters. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they reportedly pledged to be civil to each other on the campaign trail. But will identity politics get in their way? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Before I get to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, I want to just talk about Derricka for a second. She's a lawyer and an activist. She's written for The New York Times and The Guardian. But she comes to this work with a very particular perspective. Growing up, her family was skeptical, at best, of the political process. Well, I don't know if I can curse. Can I curse? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't curse. You can curse. My mom says this. I'm quoting my mom. So this, I don't have a potty mouth, but my mom does. And she says, I always try to vote for the person, the politician with the smallest foot, because I know it will hurt the least when they kick me in the ass later. And so that's sort of her like guiding principles around <laughs> elections, right? It's just all of these candidates don't have you know, people like her, their concerns, their needs, typically at interest. And so my mom, you know, is I grew up, the oldest of six kids. She's a black woman who was lived in North St. Louis, mostly in poverty for her entire life. And so I think that she feels the day-to-day pressures of what it's like to have to navigate this country as a person who's literally at the bottom. And so I think that she has pretty serious and leftist critiques of the Democratic Party, the political establishment, and the candidates. And she doesn't fall into the trap of identity politics. But it sounds like she doesn't trust any of them. No, of course not. Even when Barack Obama was running, I was so excited. I had so much hope. I was like knocking on doors, going to rallies. I was like really trying to get people out. And (laughs) when I remember telling my mom this and she was just like, you know, I think it's important that he wins. You know, I didn't think in my lifetime I would see it when he ultimately got elected. She wept. Many people, many black people in my family cried when he was elected. But I think they all knew that once he got in office that people like them, like I said, poor black families who were in the Midwest, were going to bear the brunt of some parts of his administration and then just be completely forgotten in other parts of it. Like everyone else, Derricka's political choices are complicated. She gave me this example from a while back, when Kamala Harris was first considering a presidential run. Derricka wasn't immediately sold, even though, like Kamala, she's a lawyer and a black woman. So Derricka got on Facebook, and she expressed her frustration about Harris's history as a prosecutor. And I was like, oh, no, please. If she announces a run for president, I'm so, so nervous that this black girl magic moment that we are in is going to allow her to ease into the White House, you know? And I probably said that too generically. Like, obviously, there are tons of barriers for women 
to overcome, especially women of color, I would imagine biracial women with immigrant parents to overcome in order to achieve elected office, let alone the president of the United States. But I was seriously concerned that we have been in such a moment and privileging the stories of women who were like underdogs, oppressed, victims of sexual violence, leaders of social movements. Kamala Harris may have capitalized on that particular moment and garnered a lot of support from black people, from women. Well, when you shared that thought on Facebook, like what kind of response did you get? Were people supportive of what you were saying or were they also kind of like, hey, hey, we have to look out for people here? Oh, yeah, I got tons of that, especially when I started. So after she announced, when I started writing more about, you know, being suspicious of her run, yeah, I got tons of backlash. I got personal emails. <laughs> I got letters. I, someone found my my home address and sent me a letter. You know, so I got tons of backlash about how it's important that we support black women. You know, I'm another black woman trying to tear down another black woman. What did the letter say? Just like, you know, it's it, it's really important for us to not like pick fights with people who basically have like our best interests at heart and have to learn how to play the game. I think because I have written things that are particularly critical of how identity politics has shown up in elections and programs, I've had to endure a lot of those critiques. And what's interesting is that through all of everything that I've written, everything that I've tried to do in my life has been, you know, for people like my mom, for people who are like black, poor Midwesterners who, you know, they representation is important, but it's not enough. It doesn't feed you. It doesn't keep your lights on. It doesn't, you know, make sure you can attend quality schools. And I know this, right? So it's it's unfortunate that people of color who call out other people of color for not being progressive are then told to be quiet or told to shut up or told to not engage because we're, you know, tearing down people who have our best interests at heart. It's interesting. I was going back to your writing on Kamala Harris and what I thought really stood out to me was the fact that you were looking at identity politics differently. Your identity wasn't purely racial. You're a lawyer, you're a black woman, but you still didn't identify necessarily with Kamala Harris because you identified more as a young homeless girl who was having trouble getting to school and Kamala Harris was known for holding parents accountable for their kids' truancy. And you were thinking, what if that happened to me? Yeah, absolutely. I think identity politics is its important that it gets us into a conversation. The problem is when identity politics, choosing people, supporting people on solely on the basis of your identity, then forecloses radical possibilities and opportunities. And that's where I have a problem with it. And so, yeah, I have several other, you know, identities that inform my politics. Yeah, could I have identified with Kamala Harris being a lawyer, a black lawyer, and trying to play the game? I mean, sure, but I think there's just so much more, so much more to me, and frankly, so much more to her that would allow me to give her a pass because of that. This fall, as the Democratic field began to winnow down and political tension ratcheted up, Derricka noticed the ways identity politics could cloud the way some observers saw the candidates. When a Washington Post reporter broke the news that Bernie Sanders would be getting an endorsement from three prominent members of the squad, scores of Twitter comments followed. Like this. 
Supporting the old white guy, huh? Nothing like the hypocrisy of the radical left. All this, even though these endorsements made sense. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had campaigned for Bernie back in 2016, and Democratic Socialist ideas united all of them. Unfortunately, what I did here online was that the people who I saw really excited about the squad, you know, these four progressive women of color, you know, a prominent feminist who was just like, how is it possible that these women of color, these progressive women of color could then go and support this white man? So then you fall right back into the trappings of bad identity politics. Right. Because what you're saying is like these women supporting the candidates they did, whether it was Warren or Sanders, made a kind of obvious sense. But the fact that they were women of color sort of prevented us from seeing that. Yeah. And interestingly, I think it's racist and sexist. I think it's racist and sexist to constrain women of color's political choices on the basis of their sex and their race. I think it's problematic to say that AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar, any of them should have endorsed anyone on the basis of their gender and race. And more than just that, that they will go against the DSA that most of them are members of. I'm just trying to find the logic in in that. Well, let's talk about where we are in the election cycle now. The breakdowns of who's siding with who, if you look at it just in terms of cold calculating numbers, they might look strange to you. My colleague Christina Carucci wrote this article and she broke it down saying, you know, Elizabeth Warren is garnering the LGBTQ vote and Joe Biden is getting black voters. Mayor Pete is getting older voters. Bernie's getting younger voters. I wonder if you think breaking things down like that is fair. So, yeah, I think that. Information is important because information then informs like how you're able to make sense of a phenomenon. So, for example, Biden is leading with the black vote, but he's leading with moderate centrist black voters who are typically older. Bernie Sanders is leading with, you know, young black voters, young Latinx voters. So I think that information matters because you can't tell a simple story about who's getting the black support. And so those breakdowns, you know, they just give us information about which sets of candidates and which sets of um, subgroups, what interests are at stake. Right. So if if the if moderate black or older voters are interested in supporting Biden because they have a fear that no other candidate is going to beat Trump. They remember probably more than younger candidates, right, what it was like to live in an America where the racism was much more on display. Not that it's gone away now, not that it's hidden, but I think that by their impulse to choose a candidate who they believe is safe, who they associate with Obama, the first black president, I think that there's reasons to be sympathetic towards that and to not just tell a flat story that, oh, he's getting the black support. Because without knowing what types of black people are supporting him, then organizers can't go to those people and say, hey, I know you are interested in supporting Biden for these sets of reasons, and I'm sympathetic towards it. But here actually is what a Biden presidency is going to look like for black people. And this is how it's going to differ from Obama. You know, so it's I think those breakdowns can be helpful if they're going to then inform organizing or a strategy to then go and try to make a difference. Do I think they're important the way that I've typically seen them slung around in terms of like attacking different groups? I think that's 
way less helpful and I'm way less interested in that. Yeah, it sounds like you want to have a policy debate, not a debate about what color someone is or what gender someone is. Well, I'm not saying that gender and race and class, those things don't matter. I think what's different is that I am critical of people throwing the word sexist and misogynist around for people who are not supporting Elizabeth Warren and who are supporting Bernie Sanders. And so that's where I sort of draw a pause. You know, if she wins the primary, I will knock on doors for her to my knuckles bleed. I will call people. I will get Elizabeth Warren tattooed over my belly like thug life. I will go all out for her. I just think that I am, like I said, suspicious of sexism and misogyny being thrown around as if Warren and Sanders are not fundamentally different candidates. But Sanders calling Warren elitist, Warren calling Sanders sexist, part of what makes these charges so electric are that we've heard these arguments before. Back in 2016, when Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders, but then lost to Donald Trump. With voters still waiting to cast their ballots this political season, it's hard not to think back on the last election. And for Democrats, those memories are not good. You can see this anxiety spool out online if you simply look around for the hashtags Bernie or bust or never Warren. You've alluded to this a little bit before, but when I look at some of this factionalism we're talking about, I keep asking myself, just wondering, like, how real is it? Is it really just an online thing? Because I was looking on Twitter, for instance, and this this hashtag, this never Warren hashtag was trending. And the people who were picking it up and pushing it out there were actually a bunch of people saying, we got to shut this hashtag down. It's not doing anyone any good. Kind of making the point that we're making here, which is like, this isn't the moment for this. Um, But at the same time, now that hashtag is out there and people are responding to it and they're using it. And it made me wonder, is this just a digital thing? That's exactly my point. I think that like so much of what how we get a temperature or a pulse for what is happening, we're turning to Twitter, we're turning to Facebook, we're turning to social media. And I just wish that there were other ways for people to have access to like these conversations to really think through like the logical consequences, like as a part of a group or a community and not working out their political beefs with candidates like through Twitter profiles. I think that for people who are actually doing social movement work and who are not just participating in like an online spectacle around Sanders and Warren, you know, I take them to be very serious organizers committed to the liberation of oppressed people. None of the people I know personally than people, like I said, who are involved in all of these activists and organizing groups. I don't take them to be a never Bernie or a never Warren person. You know, I would say that they have firmly landed on their candidate who's their number one. And they have vocally, they have expressed that they're going to do whatever it takes to get their number two elected if they're going to be the candidate who's nominated in the primary. And I think that's what matters. I think there's something else, too, which is kind of this distrust in, I don't know if it's mainstream media or just older Americans, that millennials younger voters, whether they're going to show up and really do the work here and like whether we really should be 
shining the spotlight on the young progressive wing or whether it's really the older people who are going to move the election because we know they're going to go to their polling places in November. Yeah, I think that we've seen before huge records of young people turn out to vote. I think that's just factual. I mean, under President Obama, like we saw huge waves of people of color, young people come out and vote and get behind a candidate they were excited about and inspired by. I think that's very, very, very important to say. I also would say that after the 2016 election, the people who started organizing and got a lot of momentum in electoral politics in this country were young people of color. You know, the Movement for Black Lives launched the Electoral Justice Project, and they got behind candidates, and they got people engaged in the voter process, and we saw them flip elections at every level, at every single level. And so I think it's unfair to say that, you know, are young people going to be able to show up when young people have shown up? You know, they have shown, they have organized, they have gotten people to the polls, they have done drives and raised money and made calls and T-shirts, thrown parties. They've done all this stuff to get people out to vote. Right now, a lot of voters are trying to figure out which candidate really has their backs. Derricka knows how hard that can be to figure out. But she says the problem with identity politics is that they can become a kind of shorthand, a way to avoid really proving a candidate's worth. And if you need a reason to rethink the way you talk about the Democratic frontrunners, Derricka offers a cautionary tale. Because Donald Trump, he came to office bolstered by his own use of identity politics, white identity politics. Absolutely. So, yeah, progressive or people on the left don't have a monopoly on how to use identity politics. That's why identity politics can be problematic on the left and the center or the right. Right. Because what happens is that you get into a trap where you're voting for someone or you're excited about supporting policies that then hurt you. You know, so I've been reading about, you know, all these white people in the South who are suffering, who are just completely suffering because They either want to reject Obamacare or they think that it primarily benefits like certain kinds of immigrants or it benefits black people. So they either refuse treatment. They're literally dying of whiteness. They're dying because they're choosing to support candidates who, you know, don't want it in in their state or they're just simply refusing certain kinds of treatment that are covered by it. And so it's it's so unfortunate that then that would be the candidate or the set of policies that you would support. But if you feel affirmed that someone is speaking or using a dog whistle to signal that they have your interest at stake, you're going to probably find comfort and solidarity in that. Derricka Purnell, thank you so much for talking to me. Yes, of course. Oh, my God. Derricka Purnell is a lawyer and a writer based in Washington, D.C. You can find her most recent pieces about the Democratic primary at The Guardian. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Jason DeLeon, Mary Wilson, and Mara Silvers. I'm Mary Harris. You can talk to me about this show on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. And on Friday, tune in for What Next TBD with Lizzie O'Leary. I'll talk to you Monday.